Agus Giadiv. Welcome to The Irish in Canada, the podcast exploring the histories and legacies of Irish immigrants and their Canadian descendants. I'm your host, Jane McGaughy. This is episode number two, Irish Nelly. Last week, we talked about Captain Francis Crozier, the Irish naval officer who was lost in the Canadian Arctic, along with the rest of the doomed crew of the Franklin Expedition. Today, we're going to look at the life of a woman who also experienced the hardships of the Canadian North. Considering everything she did and everyone she knew, Nellie Cashman should be just a more familiar name to us. She was a miner, a prospector, a restaurateur, a businesswoman, a philanthropist, and an adventurer. Note I'm saying adventurer, not adventuress, because Nellie Cashman was not patronized or belittled by the 19th century, the way women like Grace Marks or Susan Kennedy were. Nellie Cashman was a star. But unlike Frances Crozier, this isn't just a case of someone not being acknowledged for their Irishness. It's a case of a literal trailblazer hardly being acknowledged at all. Ellen Cashman, known later in her life as Irish Nelly, was born in what was then Queenstown County Cork, now the city of Cove. Her exact date of birth is disputed. One biography claims 1845, another says 1850, another says 1844. Let's just say she was born around the time of the Irish famine and go from there. We know very little about her life in Ireland. What we do know is that Nellie is one name among hundreds of thousands of women at a time when they surpassed men as the majority of the Irish leaving Ireland. There's a lot of scholarship now about transnationalism and the need to frame historical characters in terms of how their lives were affected by living in numerous places. Nellie Cashman absolutely fits a transnational perspective on the late 19th and early 20th centuries, representing the ties between Ireland, America, and Canada. And we're very lucky that, in some instances, we have Nellie's own words to describe her adventures in the Klondike and the Wild West. She spoke to a number of newspapers and journalists, and they liked to quote Nellie verbatim. While still a teenager, she reportedly sailed for Boston with her sister Fanny and her mother Frances. By the time of the American Civil War, Nellie worked as a bellhop at a well-to-do Boston hotel, filling in for the men who were off fighting the Confederacy. While there, she met a man who also had Irish ancestry, General Ulysses S. Grant. Nellie recalled, quote, He was easy to talk to, like everyone I ever knew, and when I told him that I wanted to do things because I had to if I wanted to live, he said, Why don't you go west, young woman? The west needs people like you. Well, we had gone west when we left Ireland, and I certainly didn't expect to spend the rest of my life being a bellhop or an Irish servant girl in Boston. End quote. Barely five feet tall and less than 100 pounds, Nellie Cashman was the same height as Annie Oakley and almost the same age as Calamity Jane. And where did she go? San Francisco. I'm not going to sing the song from the Clark Gable movie, but it is definitely in my head now. When the Cashman women arrived, San Francisco was a mining town on the verge of becoming a major city on the West Coast, 
but it was one where the gender imbalance was glaringly obvious. Fanny, Nellie's sister, met an Irishman, Thomas Cunningham, and got married. But Nellie wasn't keen on settling down. Instead, she and her mother both got mining fever, and they left for the silver fields of Nevada. The Arizona Star once quipped that Nellie, quote, preferred being pals with men to being cook for one man, end quote. In fact, let's get the man question out in the open before we talk more about Nellie's adventures. She never married. She was a good Catholic and friends with the Sisters of St. Anne's in Victoria, British Columbia, helping to raise money to establish St. Joseph's Hospital there. I've read quite a few biographies of her over the past few months, and there's never a sniff of a love affair gone wrong with a man or a woman. She was definitely very maternal, taking care of friends, family, and strangers alike, but never had children of her own, although she did raise her sister's children after Fanny died in 1881. Nellie never conformed to accepted gender roles, but there's no scandal attached to her name either, unlike some of the other women we've featured on the podcast. If the Victorian ideal of a woman was the angel of the house, then Nellie was a variant of that, but one outdoors and in a mining camp. Frances Backhouse's profile of her in 1988 talks of Nellie's male friends once turning her away from camp because the men, quote, feared for her reputation, or theirs, if she was allowed to remain in camp after dark, end quote. Nellie herself was once asked if she ever feared for her virtue, being surrounded by miners and rough men for so much of her life. Quote, Bless your soul, no. I never had a word said to me that was out of the way. The boys would see to it that anyone who ever offered to insult me could never be able to repeat the offense. The farther you go away from civilization, the bigger-hearted and more courteous you find the men. Every man I met up north was my protector, and any man I ever met, if he needed my help, got it, whether it was a hot meal, nursing, mothering, or whatever else he needed. End quote. So far, we followed Nellie from Ireland to Boston, San Francisco, and Nevada. And you might be fairly wondering, how does she count as part of Irish-Canadian history? Well, after a year in the silver camps of Nevada, Nellie headed north in 1873 with an otherwise all-male party of some 200 prospectors to the remote Cassiar Gold Mining District in northern British Columbia. Nellie continued her trademark business venture when mining, running a boarding house or restaurant for miners, and prospecting when time allowed. Soon, she had a new name, the Angel of the Cassiar. You see, the summer of 1873 had been a good one for Nellie, and she liked British Columbia. In the autumn, she had gone back to Victoria, or as she called it, civilization, to stay for the winter. But then she found out that many of her fellow miners had come down with scurvy. She formed a party of six men and headed back into the wilderness. It took 77 days to reach the camp, because winter had already set in. And by winter, I mean heavy snow, ice storms, avalanches, and extreme drops in temperature, what we might today call the polar vortex. 
In Nellie's own words, quote, We pushed on in the coldest kind of weather, with hardly any trail to follow, and after sleeping 66 days in the snow, reached the camp in time to be of service to the men, some of whom were half dead for want of supplies. Some days we traveled only five miles, for we took with us about 1,500 pounds of supplies. End quote. The Daily Colonist newspaper of Victoria, B.C., was completely in awe of the young Irishwoman who refused to let a few blizzards stand in the way of helping her friends. Quote, Her extraordinary freak of attempting to reach the diggings in midwinter and in the face of dangers and obstacles is attributed by her friends as insanity. End quote. As we've seen in previous episodes of the podcast, the word insanity has been used against Irish women in a very derogatory way. If Nellie had been a strapping young man leading the search party, they wouldn't have used that word. And it wasn't madness that spurred Nellie on to the camp. She cooked and fed the miners food rich in vitamin C, especially potatoes, and became the angel of the cassiar because she saved their lives. She stayed in Cassiar until 1876, by which point she was something of a minor celebrity. The, quote, miner's angel was a favorite with journalists. Charlene Porcelt rightly pointed out that this complicates things for us today because the various newspapers that wrote about Nellie Cashman wrote vastly different stories. I suppose, in a way, this really did make her a proper figure of Western folklore, Telling wild stories about Irish Nellie sounded no different than yarns about gunslingers like Billy the Kid or Wyatt Earp. In fact, on her return to the States, Nellie Cashman moved first to Tucson, Arizona, and then to a new silver camp, Tombstone. And while there, she became good friends with some of the cowboys and gamblers who frequented her new undertaking, the Russ House. Nellie Cashman was a busy woman in Tombstone. She ran a number of businesses, including a boot shop, a grocery store, a steakhouse, a boarding house, and a hotel. She also established the town's first Catholic church, raising funds from throughout the town, including from the Red Light District. Her philanthropic endeavors also included hospitals, a public school, and a Tombstone chapter of the Irish National Land League, which actively supported the needy families of Irish miners. And like Cassiar and Nevada beforehand, the men of Tombstone were staunch defenders of Nellie. Here's one of many anecdotes, and I hope to God it's true. A patron at the Russ House once really hated the food he had been served, and he began to make a huge stink about it. A lanky, mustachioed man seated nearby wasn't having it. What did you say about Miss Nellie's food? He asked. Food's delicious, good as I ever tasted. Yep, that's what I thought you said. And Doc Holliday put away his gun. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I just can't do the Western accent. I can't. But you can imagine it was Doc Holliday. Yes, Nellie's time in Tombstone coincided with the shootout at the OK Corral, where her dear friends Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp took on Billy Claiborne and the Clanton brothers. Seriously, sometimes you just can't make this stuff up. And it doesn't end there. Because, you see, once you're bitten by the fever for gold or silver, 
it's hard to give it up. If you've ever been to the Montreal Casino on a night when the slot machines are running hot, you know exactly what I mean. In 1897, Nellie Cashman heard that gold had been found in the Canadian Yukon, and she simply had to go. This wasn't going to be the same as her trek to the Cassiar some 25 years earlier. Nellie was almost 50 years old. In February 1898, she found herself back in Victoria, British Columbia, amassing supplies and planning her route north. But the Northwest Mounted Police, the forerunners of today's Mounties, wouldn't let anyone go alone into the Yukon without at least a year's worth of rations and 900 pounds of supplies. Nellie needed to be part of a team. She made it through the dangerous Chilkoot Pass, which often blocked other prospectors. But then winter set in, and she was forced to camp along the shores of Lake Labarge until the spring thaw. I first heard about Lake Labarge in a poem I'm sure many of you also learned in school. Quote, The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge. I cremated Sam McGee. I just wish I'd known that an Irish woman from County Cork could have been standing right next to Sam McGee that night. She was one of about 30,000 people who descended on Dawson in the early summer of 1898. But female miners only made up 1% of those who trekked north. Nellie was too late to get to the best claims, but the one she did purchase on Bonanza Creek lived up to its name, yielding over $100,000. The problem was twofold. One, she spent all of her share on other claims. And two, she always had to partner with men, because unmarried women weren't allowed to file new claims. They could only purchase claims that had already been filed. But that still didn't mean she had any intention of giving up her freedom. In an interview with the Arizona Star, she batted away the question about marriage, replying, quote, Why, child, I haven't had time for marriage. Men are a nuisance anyhow, now aren't they? They're just boys grown up. I've nursed them, embalmed them, fed and scolded them, acted as mother confessor, and fought my own with them, and you have to treat them just like boys. End quote. Like before, Nellie Cashman started a business to offset her mining pursuits. Her grocery store was in the basement of Dawson's Hotel Donovan. She lived in the town for seven years and met all sorts during that time, including Robert W. Service, the poet who wrote The Cremation of Sam McGee and The Shooting of Dan McGrew, and Jack London, who wrote White Fang and The Call of the Wild. And Wyatt Earp even came north just to visit her. She moved on from Dawson, but still prospected for gold well into her late 70s. When Nellie died, she did that in style too. She contracted double pneumonia in 1924, and when she wanted, quote, to come home to die, home was British Columbia. She moved to St. Joseph's Hospital in Victoria in October of that year and refused to be taken to her room in a wheelchair. Irish Nellie would walk, thank you very much. The sisters of St. Anne, who ran the hospital, were old friends of Nellie's. She had been raising funds for them back when she was mining in the Cassiar. She stayed in the hospital for nine weeks, 
never keen on recovering, apparently, but always happy and smiling. She died in January 1925 and asked to be buried next to the nun's plot on a bluff overlooking the Pacific Ocean in Victoria's Ross Bay Cemetery. Despite a life of adventure that could fill volumes, she has a very simple headstone. Quote, Nellie Cashman, 4 January 1925, 80 years, born in Ireland. End quote. Ellen Cashman lived a life without borders, literal or figurative ones. She moved where she wanted to go, did what she pleased through her own ingenuity and hard work, ran businesses and raised money for charity with a level of fearlessness and independence that we rarely associate with single women in the late 19th century. She was friends with the rich and famous and the first to volunteer to help the poor and the needy. What she didn't need to do any of it was a husband. She knew early on that the life that so many Irish women lived as a domestic servant was not for her. Ulysses S. Grant had once told her that, quote, the West needs people like you. No kidding. We all need people like Irish Nellie. Next time on The Irish in Canada, we'll talk about an Irishman who came so close to creating a Canadian republic and whose weapon of choice was a printing press rather than a sword. Thanks for listening to The Irish in Canada. The show was researched, written, and narrated by me, Jane McGaughy. This season was edited and mixed by Patrick McMaster and produced by Marion Mulvenna. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kate Bevan Baker, and our logo was designed by Claire McCauley. Many thanks to the School of Irish Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, the Canadian Irish Studies Foundation, Le Gouvernement de Québec, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for their support. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favourite podcast app. You can spread the word about the Irish in Canada by following us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at IrishCanadaPod. Our website is the theirishincanadapodcast.ca. That's where you can find show notes for our episodes, including lists of sources and recommendations for further reading. Until next time, Gora Maagif.